How much do you know about history's coldest cases? Because you probably know more than I do. You probably know a lot about the Zodiac Killer, Ted Bundy, and all the other serial killers out there. Today's case is something similar, and it has been named one of history's coldest cases. It is very complex, and you might have heard of it. It's the Black Dahlia case of Elizabeth Short. A little disclaimer before we continue, this case involves quite gruesome details of Elizabeth's murder and it may cause some discomfort. So if gory details aren't for you, I'd suggest maybe skip this one. Her unsolved murder has been the basis of a lot of books and films with a lot of theories and speculations as to how she died, who was her killer, and why was she killed. Her case was one of the most famous murders in American history and one of the oldest unsolved cases in Los Angeles County. Before we begin, shout out to my girl Aisha. Hopefully you're listening to this at work and it's a bit of a pastime for you. Mwah. Sources are listed in the notes, and this was a real rabbit hole. The amount of conspiracy theories and speculations on this case is incredible. I'm pretty sure my research for this one is nowhere near as in-depth and perfect as I'd like to be. And the timelines and the people who claim they know something is just, it's so hard to follow. And you're very welcome to go down that rabbit hole yourself. But let's talk about Elizabeth, aka the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29, 1924. She was about 5 foot 5 and had light blue eyes, brown hair. She was a beautiful woman. Throughout her life, she's very well known as an aspiring actress. Elizabeth's dad, Cleo Short, worked in building miniature golf course until the stock market crash in 1924, in which he lost all his savings. In 1930, his car was found on a bridge abandoned, and it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the river. So I presume this could be because of him losing everything, his business and his savings. So I can't imagine what it must have been like for young Elizabeth. One day you just don't see your dad anymore, and he'd gone out and never came back. So mind you, his body was never found at this time. But Elizabeth's mom, Phoebe, was obviously devastated, but she had to support the family, so she started working as a bookkeeper to earn money. Around the time when Elizabeth was 15, she would have really severe asthma attacks and bronchitis, and she had to undergo lung surgery. The doctor said she should move to a place with a warmer climate that would be better for her lungs. So her mother sent her to Miami, Florida, to her extended family and friends for the next three years. In sophomore year, Elizabeth actually dropped out of high school. By late 1942, Phoebe, Elizabeth's mom, was very shocked to have received a letter from Cleo. So remember Cleo, who was supposedly dead because he committed suicide? Well, plot twist, he didn't. Turned out he just ran away to California and started a new life. What a great human being to let your wife and kid think you're dead, but you just actually one day decided to up and dust to another state and live a whole new life. I mean, did communication not exist in 1924? 
So, anywho, Elizabeth moved to California in 1942 at the age of 18 to live with her dad. And bear in mind she hadn't seen him in 12 years at this point. So Cleo at the time was working at the Mare Island Naval Shipyard, which was actually the first U.S. Navy base on the Pacific Ocean. But this wasn't all sunshine and finally reunited with Dad. Elizabeth had a lot of arguments with Cleo and she ended up moving out in January 1943. She started working at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now called the Vandenberg Space Force Base. A base exchange is basically a type of retail store on U.S. military grounds. At this time she was working, she lived with a U.S. Army Air Force sergeant who had reportedly abused her. She left in mid-1943 to move to Santa Barbara, but she was soon arrested at a local bar for drinking underage. The police sent her back to Massachusetts, but she went back to Florida, and she would sometimes visit her family near Boston. After she'd gone back to Florida, she met a man called Matthew Michael Gordon Jr., who was actually a major at the U.S. Army Air Force at the time, and he was training to be deployed to Southeast Asia in the midst of World War II. It was said that Matthew later wrote a written proposal to Elizabeth asking her to marry him while he was recovering from his injury in India. But unfortunately, before they could see each other again, he died in a second crash in August 1945, less than a week before the end of the war. In 1946, Elizabeth moved to LA to visit an Air Force lieutenant named Joseph Gordon Fickling, where she was working as a waitress and renting out a room on Hollywood Boulevard. This is where her title of being known as an aspiring actress really comes in. Though she was known for it, she never really made it to any known acting jobs or credits. On July 9th, 1947, Elizabeth got back from her trip from San Diego visiting her boyfriend at the time, Robert Manley. Robert was actually married at the time. He was 25 and he had a job as a salesman. Robert was actually the second last person to have seen Elizabeth before she died. He said she dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA and Elizabeth had plans to meet her sister who was visiting from Boston. It was said that some staff at Biltmore Hotel did see her using the lobby telephone and she was later seen on Olive Street about 600 meters away from Biltmore. So this was the last time Elizabeth was sighted and no one has seen her after this. So it's no wonder there's so many speculations as to how she died and what happened to her and really, who was the last person who'd seen her? On January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger, who lived around the neighborhood of Lamarck Park, was walking around the vacant lot near the area in the morning with her three-year-old daughter. Around 10 a.m., she saw something in the distance. It kind of looked like a mannequin, you know, like one of those unwanted ones that are grayish and old from the local malls and stores. But when she walked closer, she saw that it was actually a dead body and that it was naked. Not only was it naked, it was cut in two pieces from the torso up. Betty, in a shocked state, rushed to a nearby house and called the police. When medical examiners looked at the body, it was severed at the waist, completely mutilated and completely drained of blood, which was why her skin was so pale and white. She had already been dead for about 10 hours and had died between a time of January 14th evening and 15th early morning. Her body had been apparently washed. 
Her face was slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, which is quite creepy because it kind of looks like a smile. A very disturbing one. It kind of reminds me of one of those Halloween ghost skeleton masks with, you know, like the huge creepy smile that extends all the way to your ears. This effect is called the Glasgow smile. A wound made by cutting the victim's face from corners of their mouth upward so it creates scars looking like a smile. Elizabeth also had several areas on her thighs and breasts where entire chunks of flesh had been cut away. The lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from her upper half and her intestines had been tucked neatly away under her butt area. Medical examiners said she'd been posed. Where her hands are up above her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. Near the body, a heel print and tire tracks were discovered, and there was also a cement sack with watery blood found nearby. Upon the autopsy, which was performed by Frederick Newbar, the LA County coroner, there were marks on her wrists, ankles, neck suggesting these places have been tied up tightly and there was also a quote irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss end quote on her right breast newbar also noted superficial lacerations on her right forearm left upper arm and the lower left side of the chest the body had been cut completely in half by a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. A hemicorporectomy, a mouthful, is a radical surgery where the waist below is amputated, removing the legs, genitalia, urinary system, pelvic bones, anus, and rectum. It's only recommended as a very, very last resort for people with very severe illnesses because it's such a mutilating procedure. It's recorded that only 66 people went through hemicorporectomy by 2009. So this part gets more technical, and if you did biology in high school, you might recognize some of these words. Elizabeth's lower half of her body had been removed by cutting the lumbar spine, and this severed the intestine at the dual denim. The dual denim is basically the first part of the small intestine. Newbar's report noted, quote, very little, end quote, bruising along the incision line, which means this cutting had been done after her death. Which I want to say, I don't know, luckily, because this means that Elizabeth at least didn't endure a crucial amount of pain on top of what was already inflicted on her. There was another, quote, gaping laceration end quote, measuring around 110 millimeters in length that ran along the umbilicus, which is your stomach area, to the suprapubic region, which is the area below the umbilical region. The deep cuts on each side of the face were measured at 3 inches, which was 75 millimeters on the right side of the face, and 2.5 inches, 65 millimeters on the left. The skull was not fractured, but there was bruising noted on the front and right side of the scalp, with a small amount of bleeding in the forefront of her head on the right side, which meant that she was beaten on the head. 
the cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from a deep cuts on her face and a shock from blows to the head and face. The coroner also said Elizabeth's anal canal was dilated at one and a quarter inches, 45 millimeters, suggesting she was raped. When samples were taken from her body, testing for the presence of sperm, the results came back negative. Because the police already had Elizabeth's fingerprints on file from when she was arrested for underage drinking, when they ran the body's prints, she was ID'd very quickly. So here's a part I don't really understand. Immediately after police identified Elizabeth, reporters from Los Angeles Examiner, which was a newspaper, contacted her mother, Phoebe, in Boston and told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest. And it was only after prying as much personal information as they could from Phoebe that the reporters revealed that their daughter had been murdered. <sighs> Why? Why would you do that to someone, someone's family, someone's mother, lying and luring them to give you the information you want and then telling them that you just flat out lied to them just to get juicy information for your career? I hope these people get the karma they really deserve because under no circumstances do I think it will ever be acceptable to lie about something this serious and use it to your own advantage. So the newspaper offered to pay for Phoebe's airfare and accommodations if she would travel to Los Angeles to help with the police investigation. But that was just another scheme of theirs for the newspaper to keep her away from police and other reporters to protect their own little scoop, what they just learned from Phoebe. The newspapers from the Examiner and the Los Angeles Herald Express later sensationalized the case, with one article from the Examiner describing the black tailored suit she was wearing as, quote, a tight skirt and a sheer brows, end quote. The media nicknamed her the Black Dahlia. Dahlia is a bushy type of flower representing beauty. And they also described her as an, quote, adventurous, end quote, who, quote, proud Hollywood Bolivard, end quote. The other newspaper reports, such as the one published in the LA Times on January 17, called the murder a, quote, sex fiend slaying, end quote. So, I don't know about you, but I was fuming after I read this. The amount of victim blaming, tainting a normal human being's image, and poor girl's already been murdered just to sensationalize your report and make it newsworthy enough for you to report is absolutely shameful. They, they should be ashamed, ashamed of their actions. Reducing who Elizabeth was down to what type of clothes she was wearing and sexualizing her to attract more readers is absolutely disgusting. So who murdered Elizabeth? The investigation led to many suspects. First of all, in late January 1947, a person claimed to be the killer who killed Elizabeth called the editor of the newspaper, The Examiner, saying that they uh, congratulate the coverage of the case and said he eventually turned himself in. He also told the editor to, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail, end quote. On January 24th, a suspicious envelope was dropped by a U.S. Postal Service worker. It was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers, with individual words that had been cut out from newspaper sections. 
There was also a large message on the face of the envelope that read, quote, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Letter to follow. End quote. The envelope contained Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover. Because the envelope was carefully cleaned with gasoline, which was similar to Elizabeth's body, this led police to suspect the package had been sent directly by the killer. However, after the police efforts to clean the package and lift several partial fingerprints to be sent to the FBI for testing, they actually came back inconclusive because it was said that they were compromised in transit and could not be properly analyzed. The same day the package was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to be seen on top of a trash can in an alley two miles, which was three kilometers, from where Elizabeth's body was discovered. The items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. On January 26th, another letter was received by the examiner, this time handwritten, and it read, quote, here is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Black Dahlia Avenger. End quote. The letter also named a location at which the supposed killer would turn himself in. Police waited at the location on the morning of January 29th, but the alleged killer did not show up. Instead, at 1 p.m., the examiner offices received another cut-and-pasted letter which read, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. End quote. Because this case had quite a graphic nature following the creepy letters that were delivered, this resulted in a media frenzy. It received a lot of both local and national coverage, and a lot of them reprinted sensationalized reports saying Elizabeth had been tortured for hours before her death. This information was deemed as false, yet police allowed the reports to circulate to conceal Elizabeth's true cause of death, which was cerebral hemorrhage from the public. I'm not sure how this was supposed to help the grieving mother, Phoebe, and the rest of Elizabeth's family and friends, but I suppose it's meant to somehow lure the killer out and hopefully appeal to their egoistic side to cause them to leave clues or reach out, and it would lead them to the murderer. Anywho, there were a lot of conflicting reports suggesting many different ways as to how Elizabeth died and the details of it, and the police just sort of let it go on. This including further reports about Elizabeth's personal life were publicized, including details about her alleged declining of Mark's romantic advances. Additionally, for a while, reporters and detectives looked into the possibility that Elizabeth was a lesbian and began questioning employees at gay bars in Los Angeles. This was because a stripper who was an acquaintance of Elizabeth's had told police that Elizabeth, quote, liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry, end quote. However, this claim was not backed. The Herald Express, another newspaper, also received several letters from the purported killer, again made with cut and pasted clippings, one of which read, quote, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me, end quote. When interviewed, lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue 
told the press that he believed Elizabeth's murder had taken place in a remote building or shack on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and her body transported into the city where it was disposed. Based on the precise cuts and dissections of the corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility that the murderer had been a surgeon, a doctor, or someone with medical knowledge. And in mid-February 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located near the site where Elizabeth's body had been discovered. And they requested a complete list of the program's students. The university agreed so long as the students' identities remained private. Background checks were done, but nothing came back. In that same year, two months later in March, a beach caretaker found a pile of clothes next to the ocean and turned them into John Dillon, who was the lifeguard captain at the time. Inside the pile, there was a shoe, and they found a piece of paper tucked into the shoe. The note read, quote, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for Black Dahlia killing, but I have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that, or this. Sorry, Mary." End quote. Upon discovering this, John, the captain, quickly notified the captain of West LA Police Station. Inside the pile there was a coat, trousers of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks and tan shoes sized 8. However, these clothes didn't have any ID or anything on them that gave them clues about who owned them. So remember they found an envelope in January, and there was an address book with it with the name Mark Hansen on it? At this point, he was the only lead, and the police named him a suspect. Turns out this guy, Mark Hansen, was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner. And get this, Elizabeth happened to know him and stay there for a little while with her friends. According to some sources, he also confirmed that the purse and shoe discovered in an alley were in fact Elizabeth's. When police questioned Elizabeth's friend and roommate Anne, she told investigators that Elizabeth had recently rejected sexual advances from Mark, and Anne suggested this as a potential cause for him to kill her. However, Mark was cleared of suspicion. On top of that, LAPD also interviewed over 150 men in the following weeks for whom they believed to be potential suspects. What about Robert, you asked? Robert, Elizabeth's San Diego boyfriend, who was one of the last people to see her alive, he was also investigated. But he was also cleared of suspicion after passing a number of polygraphs. Police also interviewed several people found in Hansen's address book, including a guy called Martin Lewis, who had been Elizabeth's acquaintance. Martin was able to provide an alibi showing he was in Portland, Oregon, visiting his father-in-law who was dying of kidney failure on the date of Elizabeth's murder, so he was also cleared. This case was so big because a total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on a case during the initial stages, including 400 sheriff's deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. They searched a lot of places for potential evidence, including storm drains throughout LA, abandoned structures, and along the LA River, but the searches didn't turn up with anything. 
City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward at the time, which is now equivalent to around $100,000 for information leading police to Elizabeth's killer. After the announcement of the reward, a lot of people came forward claiming they were the killer, but most of them police dismissed as false, and several of the false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice. With no leads, by the spring of 1947, the Black Dahlia murder had became a cold case with no leads. One of the lead detectives of the case at that time, Sergeant Finnis Brown, blamed the media for compromising the investigation by the reporters probing into details and a mixture of unverified reporting, which I just think is bullcrap. The police clearly stood by and did nothing when they all started in an attempt to confuse everyone and no one ever came out of this to clarify that no, Elizabeth actually died of hemorrhage, not these other made-up stories to get more reads. And the police just kind of let them spin the story until one point it was declared as a cold case when they came out and be like, oh, it was actually the media's fault and not ours. Well, where were you when they dehumanized this poor girl just to sexualize her and get more people to buy their papers? While the police worked hard on this investigation, I don't think they defended her name, her honor, and just stood by and let the public's perception of her go down the drain. Now, I can't even imagine how her family and friends must have coped amidst all this press publicizing her past and her private life, let alone expecting them to respect the dead and let her rest. In September 1949, a grand jury convened to discuss inadequacies in the LAPD homicide unit based on their failure to solve multiple murders especially those of women and children, in the past several years, and the Black Dahlia murder was one of them. In the aftermath of the grand jury, further investigation was done on Elizabeth's past, with detectives tracing her movements between Massachusetts, California, and Florida, and they also interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans. However, all interviews captured no useful information to the murder. Because Elizabeth's murder was so well known, it has spurred a large number of confessions over the years, but many of which had been confirmed to be false. During the initial investigation onto her murder, police received a total of 60 confessions, mostly made by men. Since that time, over 500 people have confessed to the crime. Some hadn't even been born at the time of her death. In 2003, Ralph Asdell, one of the original detectives on the case, told the Times that he believed he had interviewed Elizabeth's killer, a man who had been seen with his sedan parked near the vacant lot where her body was discovered in the early morning hours in January 1947. A neighbor driving by that day stopped to throw away a bag of lawn clippings in a vacant lot when he saw a parked sedan and said that the car had its right rear door open and the driver of the sedan was standing in the lot. The neighbor's arrival apparently startled the owner of the sedan who approached his car and peered in a window before returning to the sedan and driving away. The owner of the sedan was followed to a local restaurant where he worked, but he was ultimately cleared of suspicion. There have also been a lot of other speculations and people deemed as suspects by other public figures. Suspects remaining under discussion by various authors and experts include a doctor named Walter Bailey, proposed by the former Times copy editor Larry Harnish, Times publisher Norman Chandler, whose biographer Donald Wolf claimed impregnated Elizabeth, 
Some of the other suspects included someone named Leslie Dillon, Joseph A. Dumais, R.T. Lane, who went by Jeff Connors, and there's Mark Hansen, who I mentioned before, and many more. A man named George Hill Hoddle Jr. was also a suspect. Like the others, he was never formally charged with the crime. He actually was speculated as a suspect by the wider public after his death when he was accused by his son, LA homicide detective Steve Hoddle, of killing Elizabeth and committing several other murders. Prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, but he was not charged. He was also accused of raping his own daughter, Tamar, but in the end, he was acquitted. He fled the country several times and spent 1950 to 1990 in the Philippines. Though none of these cases in which he was a suspect and were solidified and he just remained a suspect until he died, and obviously by that time he'd have already passed away so that there's no way of confirming or denying whether or not he was the Black Dahlia killer. This was a case that seemed to be filled with leads that ran cold and no suspect was given a follow-up or that they all had substantial alibis or just false confessors. There's been a lot of theories on a Black Dahlia case since then and the potentially related crimes. And here I've only just named a few. If you go online, there's a lot of conspiracy theories you can go down that rabbit hole yourself there's so much to talk about and so many people have spun the story and i feel like at this point it's really hard to tell whether some things that have been said are true or not because at this point people have retold the story so many times and i feel like some details can just get lost in translation it's like a huge game of telephone several crime authors have suspected a link between the black dollar murder and the cleveland torso murders between 1934 and 1935 which included an unidentified serial killer known for dismembering 12 known victims body parts as part of their investigation into other murders that took place before and after the black dahlia killing the original LAPD investigators studied the torso murders in 1947, but later said there was no relationship between the two cases. In 1980, new evidence resulted in former torso murder suspect Jack Anderson Wilson, also known as Arnold Smith, to be investigated by Detective St. John in relation to Elizabeth's murder. LAPD claimed they were close to arresting Wilson for the Black Dahlia murder, but Wilson died in a fire in February 1982. The possible connection between the Black Dahlia murder and the Torso murders received renewed media attention and it was actually profiled on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries in 1992. And there were also many others, like on February 10th, 1947, the murder of Jean French in LA was also considered by the media and detectives as possibly being connected to the Black Dahlia case. Jean's body was discovered in West LA on Grandview Boulevard, nude and badly beaten. Written on her stomach in lipstick was what appeared to say, fuck you BD and the letters TX below. The Herald Express covered the story heavily and drew comparisons 
to the Black Dahlia case less than a month prior, suggesting the initials BD stand for Black Dahlia. But according to a historian named John Lewis, the writing actually read PD, not BD, standing for Police Department. There were many other theories since then because this was such a wide-known case, like I said before, and you can go down that rabbit hole all you want if you just click on Google. But there were disputes over the actual murder of Elizabeth and the state of her body when she was found as well. For once, a number of people contacted police and newspapers and claimed to have seen her during her so-called missing week between January 9th and January 15th. Bear in mind that none of these people knew her. The police and DA investigator ruled out each alleged sighting. In some cases, they were actually seeing other women, identifying other women whom they thought were Elizabeth. Until this day, Elizabeth's whereabouts in the days leading up to her murder and the discovery of her body are actually unknown. Other media outlets have said that the coroner who performed Elizabeth's autopsy suggested in conversation that she had been forced to consume feces. But this claim was also denied and claimed not to be true, but it was still reprinted in several prints and online media. So you can really see why I just said there are so many contradictive he says, she says, witness says, police says, DA says, investigator says. It's just so confusing and these details, by the time the media sensationalized it, they've already been blurred out and we don't really know what's true and false anymore. So the name Black Dahlia actually came to play shortly after her death was printed. It was said that it was based on staff and patrons at a Long Beach drugstore in mid-1946 as wordplay on the film The Blue Dahlia, which aired in 1946. Other rumors said that the media made up the name because Elizabeth really liked wearing her hair with dahlias. According to the FBI official website, she received the first part of her nickname from the press, quote, for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes, end quote. Reporters by DA investigators also stated that the nickname was invented by newspaper reporters covering her murder. Herald Express reporter Bevel Means, who interviewed Elizabeth's acquaintances at a drugstore, had been credited with first using the Black Dahlia name. Before using the Black Dahlia name, the case also had been called the Werewolf Murder by Herald Express because of the brutal nature of the crime. Elizabeth was very heavily sexualized by the public. It's a very problematic issue at the moment, but I think at that time, it was even worse. Some of Elizabeth's acquaintances and several authors and journalists described her as a prostitute or call girl during her time in LA, but the jury had proved that there was no evidence that she was ever a prostitute. Another widely circulated rumor, which was sometimes used to counterclaim that Elizabeth was a prostitute, said that she was unable to have sexual intercourse because of a congenital defect which meant that her sexual organs were not functioning properly. LA County DA files stated that the investigators had questioned three men with Elizabeth had engaged with in sexually, including a Chicago police officer who was a suspect in the case at the time. FBI files on a case also contained a statement from one of Elizabeth's alleged lovers. 
Elizabeth's autopsy stated that her uterus was, quote, small, end quote, but no other evidence in the autopsy suggested her reproductive organs were anything other than anatomically normal. The autopsy also said that she was not and had never been pregnant, contrary to what had been claimed prior to and following her death. Another rumor saying that she was a lesbian was often circulated. It was said that this rumor began after the Herald Express newspaper was told by the deputy coroner that Elizabeth, quote, wasn't having sex with men, end quote, because of her, quote, small, end quote, genitalia. <sighs> by the way, I'm, at this point, I'm just so sick and tired of this Herald Express newspaper. I am not a big fan of it. Oh, why, why would they be spreading rooms? I like, I get it. You have to earn money for the newspaper, but really just like body shaming this girl and victim shaming this girl. Do you really think this is an ethical way to be running a newspaper company? So anyways, people spun this and took this to mean that Elizabeth had sex with women. And the detectives and reporters therefore began investigating gay bars in LA for further information, but nothing ever came back. Elizabeth has been buried in Oakland. After her younger sisters had grown up and married, their mother Phoebe moved to Oakland to be near her daughter's grave. She finally returned to the East Coast in the 1970s, where she lived into her 90s. This is just very heartbreaking to read when I was researching, but I guess something positive came out of it when on February 2nd, 1947, two weeks after Elizabeth's murder, when the Republican State Assemblyman C. Don Field was prompted by the case to introduce a bill calling for the formation of a sex offender registry. The state of California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. I think it's so sad that it takes something so brutal to begin something that was meant to protect the citizens of California, and the citizens of the U.S. in general. Elizabeth's murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history and Time Magazine listed as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. Elizabeth's life and death have been the basis of a lot of books, TV shows, films, both fiction and non-fiction. Among the most famous fictional accounts is James Elroy's 1987 novel, The Black Dahlia, which also explored, quote, politics, crime, and corruption in post-war Los Angeles. End quote, according to cultural critic David M. Fine. Elroy's novel was adapted into a 2006 film of the same name by director Brian De Palma. However, both Elroy's novel and its film adaptation were largely fictional and did not base entirely on the facts of the case. Elizabeth was also portrayed in heavily fictionalized accounts by Lucy Arnaz in the 1975 television film Who is the Black Dahlia by Jessica Nelson in season 4, episode 13 of Hunter, and by Mina Suvari in American Horror Story in 2011 featuring Elizabeth in the plot line of the episode Spooky Little Girl, and again in 2018 with Return to Murder House. What do you think? I think this was no doubt a very, very sad case. 
not just what Elizabeth went through, but also the criticisms and how the media portrayed her case and wrote it into a scandalous story on top of the trauma the victim had experienced. And her family and friends had to see this all happening, the inadequacies of the police and being used and played by the media. It's just so heartbreaking to learn about what happened and the aftermath on top of that. I really hope that at some point, Elizabeth's mom and the rest of her family and friends were able to recover from this horrible thing and live their own life in peace away from the horrible media harassment. Bless them.